Hey, everybody. How's it going? This is Rob Turley, your host of Down the Rabbit Hole podcast, a.k.a. Uh, the RevOps Hitman. Great to be here. Great to have everybody here. Thank you for listening. This podcast, of course, is brought to you by White Rabbit Intel. Now, I'd like to introduce somebody who I've actually really wanted on this podcast uh, for quite some time. So I'm very excited to have him here. A friend of Colin Mitchell's as well, which was, uh, I was like, oh, you know, oh, great. Uh, but I've got Andy Paul here today, and uh, the man has written some incredible books. Um, he is a seasoned salesperson, and he is a true believer and a firm enforcer of rehumanizing the sales process because it's become so automated, it's become so uh, repetitive and uh, just overall artificial that uh, it feels like when salespeople go after you, it's just a pitch and they're just trying to get money out of you or all they care about is the paycheck and they don't care about the client. They don't care about the prospect. They couldn't even give a shit. I've had people come into meetings with me as a business owner and they just say, oh yeah, so I'm gonna here to help you solve this problem. They don't even know what I do. <laughs> How do you not even know what I do for a living? If, if you're trying to sell to me and you haven't looked at my company, it's ridiculous, but please, Andy, uh, give yourself a better introduction than I have, and please uh, tell the world a little bit about what it is that uh, that you're driving toward. What's the force? You summed it up beautifully. Rehumanizing the sales process. I love that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's really the subject of my book, Sell Without Selling Out, as you talked about, which in part also traces sort of my journey from the very beginning of my sales career being completely at odds with the methodologies and the techniques and so on that were being taught decades ago, which I haven't gotten any better, by the way, I haven't changed substantially and saying, okay, that's, that's not going to work for me. Uh, what can I do differently and, and make it work. And so, yeah, that's our started journey. Uh, so working my way through Silicon Valley and some bunch of startups, started my own company about 20 years ago to help companies transform the way they sell and uh, led me down this path of writing books and having a few podcast uh, episodes that we've done and uh, being here with you today. Oh, beautiful. I love it. And so out of curiosity, what is like, where does all of it align when you've been helping all these companies over 20 years? Where are I, it's either the one or however many, if there's two, three, whatever, where are the areas of alignment where you see the major issue? And I'm not talking about any of the symptoms. I'm talking about the core problem, which usually it boils down to one or two things. What have you seen? The core problem is, and this is persists. In fact, it's probably even gotten worse. It seems like is that companies don't win a high enough fraction of their qualified opportunities. So what, what do you think the uh, the culprit is in that case? Is is it the communication? Is it uh, the the research? Is it the uh, the the uh, method of outreach or the frequency thereof? What, what do you think the the different pieces are around that? I think the the primary culprit is the buyer's experience with the seller is poor. If you want to summarize it, is that, you know, think about the environment we're in today. I mean, look at any sort of software category. If there's one, if you're selling that product, you have one competitor, you probably have two dozen competitors, right? And in those environments, when a customer evaluates your products, they're going to say, hmm, wow, they're all basically the same. So what differentiates one company from another and the total package at that point really becomes their experience going through their buying journey with you the seller and yeah 
in the challenger sale, I think they said, you know, 53% of the buyer's decision was based on their experience with the seller. There's other figures that are roughly in that range, but probably the easiest way to think about it is if in the mind's eye of the buyer, your products are all sort of indistinguishable, what becomes the tiebreaker? You become the tiebreaker and their experience with you. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is this is the commonality is that that's what contributes to companies you know, experiencing low win rates. I mean, there was I just read some research in a book last week that was had surveyed you know, 5,500 companies across multiple industries and in B2B selling and their win rate was 17 percent, meaning closing less than one out of every five of the most qualified opportunities. Yeah, that makes sense. And a lot of people hit around that 20 to 35% area uh, as far as close rates with actual qualified opportunities. Not not qualified in the sense of what people say is, oh, they're a SaaS company. They're in the United States. They're, they're 200 to 500 in size. And uh, uh, I'm talking to the VP of sales. That's qualified. That's qualified as hell. Well, but some people, I mean, let's, let's be specific because you know, some companies track close rates as a function of, of a metric that they, they track. But that includes both close loss and close one. I mean, it's, I don't think there are moral victories in sales. So just the fact you got somebody to a close is not something to celebrate. Um, hey, you're doing your job. Yeah, is it's win rate. And so this is problematic. It is, and most people don't actually calculate. Well, from my experience of talking to a lot of people, um, a lot of VPs of sales, a lot of VPs of marketing, a lot of CEOs, founders, is that they do not track cold to conversion rate at all. They say, well, I'm like, well, what's your what's your close rate? Uh, what's your close ratio? You go, oh, 35%. So what I did, I, I made this uh, this assessment. It's mm. a sales organization health assessment. And it's one of my favorite things in the whole world. It's no longer on the website, so you can't look at it anymore. But if anybody wants it after this, they listen to this podcast, I could send it to you. It's actually kind of funny. Because they, they plug in all the numbers. It's asking them a whole slew of questions. Then they plug in the numbers and the numbers that they plug in are the numbers to calculate your conversion rate from cold to close. It's all lined up. Then right. they type in all of the numbers like, you know, it, and they're accurate because they pulled them in the CRM. And then it asks them at the end, what is your conversion rate, your overall conversion rate? Then they put in like 35% when no. all the numbers are right there calculated and it's always less than a half a percent. Right. On that. Right. What I'm talking about with win rate is, you know, at the start of a period, your month or your quarter, in your pipeline, you say, these are the deals that are qualified that we're going to win. What percentage of those are you winning? That's your win rate that you need to focus on. Because that is the buyer's ultimate referendum on how well you do. <laughs> it's, there's no getting around it. Yeah, the, the buyer's and, journey is absolutely the, the most important piece of the puzzle there. It's that uh, sellers tend to forget that uh, it's the buyer's journey. It's not the seller's journey. Exactly. Yeah, that's that is absolutely true. I mean, the fact that here we are in year 2022 and we've got sales processes that are defined that march down this path here and then completely parallel to it is this buying journey. And I believe that until we use the same terminology as sellers, we use the same terminology to define where the buyer sits in their journey as the buyer is using, we're always going to have this problem. I mean, we say when, when you're talking about that, we're using the same definition of the same uh, to way of track and understand. Both. I'll, yeah, I'll simplify it very. I mean, so like if you look at Gartner's buyer enablement 
diagram, this famous spaghetti diagram. You know, they said they said there are four jobs customers have to buyers have to achieve uh, or accomplish. Excuse me, in their buying journey, and I sort of simplified it down to three, and I call it the the what, the how, and the who. And the what phase is what's our problem? What's the problem we're trying to solve? And what outcomes can we achieve by addressing the problems? The second second phase is the how phase, which is okay. How are we going to do that? Now that we've defined those things, how are we going to achieve addressing the problem and achieving our desired outcomes? And the third order decision of all of that is who are we going to do that with? That's a good question. And so, well, but the thing is, most sellers start with the who, right? Right. <laughs> it needs to be the last thing that the buyer really considers. Because you look at it from the buyer's perspective, yeah, I think I've got a problem. I'm not really sure. Now, if I can solve this all on my own, something transactional, I don't need sellers. But at some point, I'm going to need to talk to a salesperson, maybe. Why am I going to talk to a salesperson? Well, they help me figure out the what, right? That's what they want from you. Help me figure out the what. And then we get to the how phase. I can do a lot of that research myself, but you know, I may not be aware of all the options that exist to be able to, to do that again. Having perspective and insight from a seller about maybe how some other companies have, have accomplished that, that can be interesting for us. And then at the end of that- When how? you say the what, uh, the what a lot of people think is what they will buy, or the flip side of that is uh, what type of company what type of uh, need? Yeah, no, it's, it's what's the problem and what can we achieve by solving the problem? And yeah, there's been other research by people saying, hey, when they get to the end of this, this how phase is then companies formulate some options, right? This is our option, how we think we can achieve what we want to achieve. Well, do you think part of the gap is that, uh, you know, salespeople, when they close, they close the deal, they think that their job is done. Ah, deal's closed. Well, no, the sale's never over until they either leave in a pine box or they never want to do business with you again, right? So well, they, they think it's done, but something that's never tracked as far as a metric is that literally quoting the client, the new client, on precisely, you just ask them one question, how come you decided to work with us? What was the thing that uh, you know got mm -hmm. you over the line? Mm -hmm. And then based on that one sentence thing that they say, you type that into the CRM in the closed one reason verbatim. Then the marketing team actually has real data on the decision in the moment as to why that person bought. Yeah. Well, I would argue that if you're going to do that, you need to go a little more in depth on that because, you know, it depends who you ask. Right. So there's a secondary, the reason. So it's, it's like the way that we do it is there's two different things. There's the what they quote. And then as the closed one reason, that's the reason why they just bought it. The um, then there's the reason, which is the salesperson's perspective based on all the problem solving and all of the discovery, all the questions of why they believe they're working with uh, with us. Yeah, but no, I say you have to go deeper on the, the customer side, right? I mean, there's so much assumption that's that's made about why why we won business or why we lost business, and there's an increasing number of companies now that are existing to help you go through that. And again, you may not do every opportunity, but you need to do enough. To really understand exactly what the buyer's perspective on it was. Uh, how would you track some of this information? Because if you don't track it, the way I look at it is that if a yeah, person is not putting in data into the CRM to the point where if they were to get hit by a bus, God forbid, tomorrow, that another salesperson could go into that deal 
and know exactly what's going on and be totally brief from all the information that's in there. So the only thing that's missing is the rapport. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. I mean, there's a friend of mine in, in Australia named Kean McLaughlin. He's got a business, uh, Trinity, I forget what the Trinity something. But this is a business. He's one of the, the leading ones in the world. B2B goes out. Um, he's hired by companies to come interview clients and do these one loss analyses for them. So they really understand it's not just talking to one. You're not relying on sales input as you're actually, you know, they develop this expertise in interviewing uh, buyers and deals you won, deals you lost to really surface the reasons why you win, why you lose. This company called Close, C-L-O-Z-D, that's that's uh, doing this now. Oh, yeah, I know them for sure. We do, uh, my company actually does the AI version of that, where it's analyzing all the data as far as metrics, getting all the meta, understanding their psychometric profile, stuff like that. But right. that doesn't give the answer that Closed would get in this case. Right. Of the psychological reasoning behind why they bought from you and the problem solving that's happening. That That's a right. gap still. And there's... Uh, company called Alinea Partners in Vienna, Austria, that does uh, secret shopping for B2B software sales at enterprise level that uh, surfaces a lot of information. You know, they, they have like 160 different test points during the buying process that they test. You know, this is from buyer's perspective. This is the data that sales teams need. And I, I, yeah, I'll just give it a sort of perfect exemplification of this is that you know, if I'm talking to a head of sales and they're talking about they're going to be hiring some new sellers and, you know, they've got job descriptions they want me to sort of maybe screen people or give them some advice on who they should be looking for. And so they've got this job description, these list of attributes they want. And I'll say, well, that's very interesting. So have you asked your buyers what they need from your salespeople? Have you ever asked your buyers what they need your sellers to be able to help them with? And the answer is universally no. The, the salespeople need to fit almost as a client in order to sell effectively so they can resonate with them. They have commonalities. They have uh, similar skill sets. There needs to be a level of resonance there. Sure. But buyers, you know, they don't go through buying products, you know, frequently of a certain type, right? I mean, you know, how often do they buy a CRM package, right? So it's not like they've... Yet once ever or once every... Five what? years. Three to five yeah, years. Five, right? seven years. Right. Yeah. So... So, but they do understand oftentimes where their shortcomings are, you know, where they maybe have gaps, where they need help from outside. That's why they're talking to sellers in the first place. Ask. It's not that hard. Ask. It's not all about you. <laughs> it's about the buyer. And what can you do to become more effective to help the buyer? Think about, you know, there's this whole concept. I don't know if you've heard, you probably heard the concept of strong ties, weak ties. And... So when people work together in an organization, they form strong ties. And there's been people have studied this. And what they find is that this is why the status quo is so hard to break is because they all know the same information. It's called redundant information at that point. So it's become sort of, think of it becoming sort of homogenized. Well, the self-aware organization knows I need somebody with weak ties to us, somebody from the outside to come in and give us new perspectives, right? Because we're just too cloistered in our views yeah it creates an inherent bias right and so yeah you need salespeople. and as i said software organizations know they need people on the outside so they'll be able to tell you exactly what they need and the help they need um or at least give you a, a good idea of what that is and so 
sales organizations be, you know, not only surveying the buyers about, you know, one loss, but going a little bit deeper and saying, well, yeah, what was this experience like? What ideally would you need us to have done better? What did you need from our sellers in these conversations? Because, hey, I just saw another study uh, last week where, you know, 70%, I think, was the figure of C-level execs saying no value at all in our interactions with salespeople. And it was either Gardner or Forrester had one that was 80%. I cited it in my book and I just saw one, uh, another one a couple weeks ago where uh, a survey, I think it was 10 or 12 and a half thousand B2B you know, buyer types, uh, stakeholders saying that in 42% of the instances, the salespeople were indistinguishable from each other. Now, this is how, this, how is that even possible? Well, because what they're saying is, look, you can't help me get to where I want to go. You're just there. You're, you know, your vanilla presence. You're, you're a show up and pitch or throw, show up and throw up. And it's, you know, like I said, the experience is no one stands out. Yeah, or it's feature dumping. They're trying to propose a solution to a problem the person may or may not have. And they're just banking on that they're going to hit the mark with it. Sure. And so this is one of the problems I address in the book is that too many sellers, and this is partly a function of, of how they're trained and socialized, is that I think their job is to persuade the buyer to buy their product. No. When you take that approach, you know, then you're going to default into these, what I talk about in the book, this range of salesy behaviors or the manipulative, stereotypical sales behaviors that buyers hate because you're trying to sell, to your point, you're trying to sell before you understand. And so the job of a seller is not to persuade somebody to buy their product. It's to listen to the buyer, understand the things that are most important to them, both in terms of the challenges they face and the outcomes they want to achieve by addressing those challenges and then help them get that. That's our job. Listen, understand, help. And if we do that, then that experience they have with us is dramatically different than if we show up and, you know, we're selling a hammer in there a nail. Yeah. The only place that I see persuasion is um, appropriate and feel free to disagree is to keep them from continuing to do the status quo. So trying to persuade them to make a change, if it will help them only. Well, I think the the difference, and I set this up in the book, is to understand is that is the difference between persuasion and influences. You know, when you just look at the very definitions of persuasion, it's about prevailing on someone. It's basically at heart, sort of a coercive type behavior at, at, at heart. Whereas influence is about having an effect on the thoughts or actions of someone else without the apparent use of force. Oh, so you want to do the influence. I didn't know that the definition of persuasion uh, involved some sort of an aggressive approach oh, yeah. or it's something where you have to, it's, it's like a dominate type of a thing. Yeah. And so it's just a different motion. If you think your job is to go out and prevail on someone, right, to do something as opposed to, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have an impact on what you're thinking and the actions you take because of the way I'm helping you, the way I'm working with you, the insights I provide. That's a whole different, that's going to be received completely differently. Yeah, it will. It will. And who wants to be told what to do in that case? They want to figure it out for themselves. I mean, it's like unsolicited help. If you try to help somebody who doesn't want help, or if you even say, can I help you? You're going to, you're going to hit the wrong chord with a lot of people because they don't want help. They don't want help from you. They, they, some people get insulted because you even offer to help them. Right. I mean, a lot of times in, in a sales context, what that happens is that this persuasion turns into a, 
sort of a zero sum game, which is, uh, yeah, I'm the seller. I'm right. Yeah. They, they make the buyer feel stupid. Yeah. And there's nothing worse that you could do to somebody outside of like torture or ignoring them entirely, their existence or their, their validity well, are you or you're invalidating them. And you are telling them the wrong and you're making them either feel stupid or you're making them think that you are not credible. Yeah. So, and there's a, uh, something I quote in my book, it's from a uh, book written by um, Jonah Berger. It's called The Catalyst. He's Professor Wharton. He, he, it's about persuasion and influence. And and he cites research that says, oh, look, as human beings, we universally hate being persuaded. We resist it. He calls it persuasion reactance. So, you know, I always find it sort of odd then that we focus so much of our our training of salespeople on persuasion when it's a behavior that all of our buyers instinctively resist. And it makes you think is that if they're resisting, why are they having the conversation with you in the first place? Well, it's not the conversation they want to have. That's what the results of the studies are showing. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. I haven't even heard of those studies. Well, no, I mean, a 70, lot of people, 70 percent of C-level execs are 80 percent, according to the one Gardner study find no value in the interactions with with sellers then clearly they're not having the conversations they want to have so the the challenge for sellers is yeah if we're just going to show up and be a human version of our website in terms of the value that that we can offer the buyer in terms of the help we can offer the buyer then yeah they don't have time for us you know all these studies we see about you know, buyers saying, ah, oh, we don't want to talk with sellers anymore. We're, we're good. We can do this all on our own. Yeah, that's on the face of it. That's just not true. What they're saying is we don't have time for you if you can't help us achieve what we want to achieve, which is to make a decision. That's exactly right. Why, why does, what's a salesperson's job? It's to help solve a problem. And if you don't have the confidence, the competence to do so, or the executive presence behind it, then you're not really going to get along with executives all that well. Uh, you have to be able to solve a problem on the spot. You need to be able to think quickly. You need to be able to pivot a conversation. Yeah, I, I would I would say you don't necessarily need to solve it on the spot. What you need to do is you need to understand what it is they're trying to achieve, right? Understand first. Sure. And, and if you can get to a level of understanding, again, of these things that are what the most important things to them, then yeah, you're in a position to help them. But if you don't go in and can't have that conversation and ask the right questions and follow up questions and in-depth questions to really get that level of understanding, yeah, then you're just pitching product. My head mathematician, Forrest, he's also a good friend. Uh, he delves into this type of stuff uh, a lot, the psychology behind people. And what he often sees is that everybody has their own reality. Your perception is your reality. The mm -hmm. fact that you're seeing through your eyes, Andy, this is your reality. I am your reality right now. However you mm -hmm. see me, how I see myself is a different reality. What I believe is a different reality. Awesome. And if you're not able to understand or understand the boundaries of someone's reality, as soon as you breach that reality or you break it down, you in, or if you invalidate it, or if you go too far beyond what they can comprehend is that it starts unfolding itself. It will collapse. It, it, your relationship will start to fall to pieces. Um, you'll you'll lose them. Often you get defiance, you get denial, you get rejection, mm -hmm. and so on. 
So we have to be very careful at understanding and mapping out where the boundaries are of the reality and where they currently are. So starting with simpler questions to start getting a feel for it is important. Yeah. And I, I yes. And I would, I would phrase it differently because that's, it's a theme, a real theme, in my book with the subtitle, my book is a guide to success on your own terms, which is that yeah, if there are, you know, 5 million salespeople out there, there are actually 5 million unique ways to sell based specifically on what you said, which is as much as companies would love to have sort of this cookie cutter approach to selling that every salesperson religiously follows and so on is the fact is they bring their unique selves to this pursuit. And they're talking to, in this case, if I was talking to you, you're unique as well. You're not the same, even though you may have the same job as 10 people in 10 similar companies, the way you look at it, the way you perceive it, the way you process information, receive information, it's you. And so the goal shouldn't be is to turn sellers into sort of cookie cutter clones of each other. It's to enable them to be at their best when they're dealing with unique situations every time they're talking to someone. And yeah, that every reality, the reality of every sales instance is different than any other one, just by virtue of the fact the two unique people in it. So this ability to be sensitive, to be present in the moment, to be focused on the other person, interested, sincerely interested in the other person, and to be able to connect with them at the human level is essential. Yeah, that human connection, that resonance, that's that's where psychometrics come in too. You need enough in common with somebody to be able to hit it off with them or make any type of real human connection. It, it's not just about business. It's not, but you need to find common, common ground, right? And mm -hmm. that, that's sort of an interesting term is it, it's, it may not mean that you have anything in common with them, but you can find common grounds or neutral ground, if you will, mm -hmm. from which to have a conversation. And, and so it's, yeah, it's not about being judgmental about the person you, that you're dealing with as a seller. It's, it's, yeah. How can I help you? Yeah. And uh, do you accept is what you're asking the person that you're selling to is the way that I see it. Is it, do, do they accept you for you and for the problem that you can help them solve and your ability to do so? Yeah. Which may take a little bit of time to, to completely be validated that they accept you, but you know, your job is to be able to help them continue to make progress toward making a decision. And they're going to make a judgment about you as, you know, I, I tell people, you know, if you get ghosted by a prospect, uh, you know, lots of people say, oh, it's nothing personal. It's business. Well, I like to say it is, it, well, it absolutely is personal. They probably didn't like you. Well, possibly, but I think it's, it's not, it's personal, but not necessarily in a, you're a bad person type of way, but it's personal in the sense that they said, look, I've made a decision and you're not worth an additional investment of my time and attention for whatever reason. Right. And yeah, it could be their perception that, yeah, they're just not likable. Um, and there are people will spring to the fence and say, Oh, you don't need to be likable to be successful in sales. And sure. There are exceptions to that. Um, but why wouldn't you be <laughs> right? It costs you nothing. Why wouldn't you be? Yeah. And if it has an impact on how you're perceived by the buyer, why wouldn't you be? And if you're aggressive or just straight up an asshole to people, if that's kind of your vibe, if you want to say that, 
you're probably not going to be that successful in the sales world. <laughs> yeah, it's not a zero sum game. I mean, it, it's it's funny when you know, when I write about these things on LinkedIn. You know, people think just because you're writing on LinkedIn that somehow you're dealing in absolutes, right? Because I gave I had one a post like that. You know, it said, uh, you know, I don't, yeah, you know, I, I don't really like Bob, and I'm, I think he's kind of an ass. So yeah, I'm gonna buy from him. It said no one ever. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Um, and I had a number of people write back and say, oh, you're so naive. Of course, you know, assholes win business all the time. It's like, sure. That's true. It's not, yeah, it's not all or nothing type thing. It's, it's but, you know, we're dealing sort of by and large. Yes, that's true. Well, it's I mean, everybody likes a specific type of asshole too. I mean, you have probably you yourself or anybody listening has that asshole friend that they love more than anything. That, yeah, they're an asshole, but they're a likable asshole. You you like the way that they are. You like the things about them and everything. You don't know why, but you continue to hang out with them or you continue to have dinner with them and their wife. You continue, you know, it's just, it well, Yeah, I mean, well, it's, yeah, people perceive them to be, right? And you don't, right? So this idea of perception is really powerful. And and it's it's why in sales, given that, you know, accept the premise that we as salespeople are the, are the tiebreaker, in sales, so how we're perceived is really important. Is we have to be intentional about how we create these perceptions in the mind of the buyer. What, it, what are some of the practices you have salespeople do uh, if they work with you to help uh, maintain a more positive perception? Well, just let's take a a simple beginning. Is is are you prepared when you have that first substantive conversation with the buyer, right? Are you prepared? Do you do any preparation whatsoever? I mean, it's it's so it gets I, bad. <laughs> I wrote I wrote about this in in my second book and and had done some research on this and and read and reading about it is is the the science of perception. So scientists have found out that we form perceptions of people in as little as two hundred and fifty milliseconds. So that's the time it takes to blink an eye, right? And they were they were writing about this in the context of you know trying to meet like a romantic partner, right? You you're in a bar somewhere or some social setting and and you're assessing people like this, boom, 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 boom. And what's what they find is that those perceptions are very sticky. So even when you you have information that directly contradicts it, the perception you formed is people are reluctant to let the perception go. Yeah, you know, perfect. It, it's stereotyping, and it's reading. So, in common well, terms, reading a book by its cover. Sure. Well, it's what the human brain is designed to actually do. Well, here's a perfect example of that of uh, perception. Let's say you have your next door neighbor. You're good friends with your next door neighbor. You wake up the next morning. They're being perp walked in handcuffs out of their house, surrounded by law enforcement. Later that day, the person's released. Oh, mistaken identity. We were looking for. Chuck Jones, who lived a mile away on a different street altogether. My apologies. What's everybody think about that person, the neighbor? I think they're a criminal. I think they're suspect. Just being seen in handcuffs is enough. Yeah. And that perception, even though it's completely false, is hard to dislodge from people's minds. So yeah, it's, it's like up, social suicide in a way. If you were to get uh, go through trial and everything and you get, uh, you know, uh, you plead not guilty and you're not guilty. And you actually get let go because you went through the whole judicial system. Everything's fine. You get let go. They find the right perpetrator, all that. 
that can single-handedly ruin your life just because you were thought to be the person who was the perpetrator. That's the power of perception. So think about it now, there's a less extreme case, but you know, you're a salesperson, you show up for this, you know, virtually in person for this first substantive call with the buyer, you're not prepared. And they're instantly thinking, this person's not, not worth my time, right? I've got limited time and attention. I'm not going to risk this again. Gone. Was it fair? Not, uh, who knows? Not necessarily. What even I'm, is fair? <laughs> right. But it is what it is. So, you know, in, in this profession and in, in selling is you have to be intentional about what perception you're creating it <laughs> continually in the mind of the buyer and never take it for granted. What are some examples that you've seen where that's failed? Perception is totally thwarted. I mean, where the the unfair perception perhaps is is created? Yeah. Well, if you want to call it unfair, it's just a perception. You know, it's I mean, fair to the person who made it. Sure. I mean, <laughs> you see it all the time. I'd see you know, people that are well intentioned, but yeah, perhaps just do the wrong thing in terms of reaching out to people. Uh, yeah, whether well, they're a little well, more like the main culprit, though, you know, where it's it's just immediate rejection that you've seen because you've probably seen a little oh, lot. immediate rejection. Well, it's making it being unprepared for one, as I talk about, and making it all about them, right? So, the incessant pitching, pitching is dead, is the way I see it. Nobody wants to be pitched unless it's invited directly, invited in. Yeah. by the individual they want to be pitched that is the only appropriate time to pitch but lead with a question instead right how do you make yourself interesting to someone yeah scientists have studied this be interested in them you ask yeah just about to say that yeah you ask about them and have them talk about themselves the whole time and they find you the most interesting person in the world right they're looking in right. the mirror so i have this this exercise you can do in the book I call it the ask five rule and something you practice in social settings is, you know, you meet somebody that, you know, you're interested in striking something up with is see if you can ask them five questions about themselves before you have to say anything about you. Just try it, practice it. See if you can ask somebody five questions before you have to say anything about yourself. And you start developing this muscle of, of, curiosity and being interested in other people and yeah it becomes very valuable because what buyers oftentimes resist is this idea they're being asked for something before they even understand what they're being asked for right yep. or why the person's there so you know if you were in a social setting and you know i met you for the first time in a social setting if you thought from the beginning that i was you know basically pitching you on something, right? Do you pitch somebody, you meet somebody in a social setting, do you pitch them on yourself? You know, do you spend a minute talking about yourself before you ask any questions about them? Of course not. Yeah, that person would never want to speak to you. Right, they'd never want to speak to you. But yeah, yeah, say, hey, I want to get your contact information so I can put you on my friend funnel. Um, no, right, it's just like, it just wouldn't happen. So this motion of, of making a friend, even though it's not what you're trying to do with your buyers, you're not trying to make them your friends, but the motion is the same. Show an interest in them first. Be curious about them. 
And what people tend to fail to do too is that they show interest in the business, but not the individual. Well, it's a great point. Absolutely a great point because when individuals are involved in a purchase decision is they always think about it from two perspectives. Is this good for the company? Is this good for me? And really, is it good for you? Uh, I mean, what future will it bring you? Will it get you a promotion? Does it put your job at risk? Uh, does it, yeah. it make their life easier? Does it help them save time? Will it enable them to uh, hit their quotas more frequently? Yeah. Well, sellers overlook this too often, which is like, say, oh, gosh, we've got five stakeholders on this decision. I'm going to make sure I understand, right, why they think this is a good decision for the company. And then we'll build consensus around that. And it's like, well, mm, sure. But if you ask them why this would be good for them, because if you have five stakeholders, you really have 10, because every stakeholder has two perspectives. And you need to reconcile all of them. What do you mean by every stakeholder has two perspectives? What does that mean to you? Is it good for the company? Is it good for me? That's the two perspectives. Every person does when they make a decision in that business context. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I helped a company I work for as on the team. We engineer an acquisition of another company. And uh, yeah, I thought the acquisition was a great idea from the company standpoint. From the personal standpoint, I wasn't thrilled with it because I knew they were going to ask me to move across the country to help manage the acquisition. <laughs> and that's actually when I said, no, do this. But once we complete this acquisition, I'm going to go start my own thing. So right. that was a dual perspective. Great for the company. Yeah, wasn't good for me necessarily, but that was fine. It was good for the company. Gave me the opportunity to go start my own thing. But you have that with individuals all the time. It's like, hey, yeah, this could be a good decision for the company, but it's going to substantially change my job on a day-to-day basis, my daily routine. I'm really, I really like my daily routine. And so if you understand that about that person, you said, okay, well, then when they get in their stakeholders meeting, the buying committee, what's this person going to be advocating for? Are they really going to say, yeah, let's make this, this purchase because I think it's a great idea? Or are they going to say, yeah, maybe we spend more time and look at alternatives? Because... Yeah, you know, they defaulted to what was important to them personally. Because not everybody's self-sacrificing, right? They're humans. So you need to understand these perspectives as sellers as much as you can. But it starts with being aware that there's always two for every individual. For sure. I mean, that resonates with me. Uh, solution that, uh, that I've been selling, right, is something that could potentially totally transform or uproot the process that they're currently using. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of when it goes into the consensus that it gets rejected simply because their day to day, their regular behavioral patterns are going to change. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just a slight shift, it makes them feel like they'll be less valued or it makes them feel like their job is not as important as it used to be, or it makes them feel like they won't be able to, uh, you know, put in the amount of work that they've been putting in. Like, oh, I'll have less work to do then. Am I am I still considered important? Yeah, well, it's that last part that's really important, right? Am I well, still your work changes, important. you have to shift. But that that's the thing. It's hard for people to grasp that concept and be okay with it. Sure. Changes, change is hard. So again, selling, buying, they're acts of change. So as sellers, we just need to be aware of what the impact of the change is perceived 
to be on the individuals, both as at, at a company level and as well as a personal level. So last question before we move to the next segment yeah. would be based off of the buyer and the seller and the way that you see change around that, because I love change. It's one of my favorite subjects, uh, one of my favorite things too, personally. Mm -hmm. So when you see change and uh, the way that uh, buyers and sellers, since you've done all this research and have this expertise behind it, how much change is too much change, both for the buyer perspective and the seller's perspective? How much change is too much change? Yeah, it's very situational. Yeah, where do people tend to draw the line? You, you'll you'll probably see patterns and where they tend to draw the line. What would usually be the, the the breaking point for most? And I know that it's different for every situation because every sale is different. Yeah, I mean, the, the things that really factor in for a lot of companies has to do with their own capabilities to manage change, right? So if, if the change you're advocating is going to stretch them too far relative to their own resources to implement and manage it, then that's, you know, if you're trying to boil the ocean, as people like to say, then that is a bridge too far for most people. And so one of the things you want to think about in some cases, which I've done and I recommend to companies that do is, you know, you may have a customer says, look, we, we're going to do this big transformation project that's, you know, worth whatever, X amount. And you look at it and say, well, yeah, but I'm really getting the sense from people internally that it's just too much, right? And maybe there's some people really advocating for the big change. Go back and propose, you know, a step process. Yeah, we're in line with the whole project, but let's instead of making it one project, let's make it four projects. And, you know, we'll do step one and doing step two is contingent on us doing a good job on step one. Companies love that. Buyers love that, right? Oh, putting some skin in the game. Great. We're de-risking it for now. We're going to have fewer people, resources, issues, fewer monetary issues. Perhaps we love that. Just segmenting out the implementation process. Yeah, the buying and the implementation process. Yeah. And, and so just making the risk, the perceived risk, smaller. Right. That makes sense. Change, you can achieve the same upside, ultimately, but you change the pace. And so... Yeah, you know, so oftentimes is you know, risk, the perception of risk can affect how people make decisions. Take it off the table. Yeah. And an overall implementation of let's say a couple tens of thousands of employees into a new uh SaaS product is Friends. a bad idea. You want to roll it out first. I mean, there's been cases of this that have happened with uh, a very large insurance company that I will not name out of respect, uh, where they they implemented, I think it was across fifty-six thousand financial advisors. Mm -hmm. They implemented a software all in one shot and it was a disaster disaster yeah well the thing is this is it's a good strategy for a smaller company because yeah at this point what you're doing is your big companies big better like to do the bigger projects whereas if you make the customer comfortable biting in smaller bites or is consuming in smaller bites sometimes the big companies lose interest that's that's an interesting juxtaposition right there mm -hmm. because the the full deployment could screw them uh and then on the flip side uh for the seller it could also screw the seller because they can't support it it's too much at once yeah, say, yeah sure we could deploy it everywhere because everybody just has to create an account we're good uh then uh when it comes to the customer success training and everything else that follows the whole thing falls to pieces giant lawsuit and then game over yeah 
people have learning curves and organizations have learning curves. And again, it's a, it could be a great competitive strategy for a smaller company trying to be against bigger companies is skinny down the scope of what you're doing. Do it in stages. I love it. That's very useful to a lot of people who listen to this, I would assume. Now, uh, for the next segment, I'd like to ask, what is the ultimatum that you would like to give or the the takeaway uh, from our conversation today that you think would be the most important part of the puzzle to implement or take action on today? Well, it's in the book, I described this framework of selling out versus selling in. And selling out is when you put your own interests ahead of those of the buyer. So don't do that. That leads you down the path to these really salesy behaviors. Selling in is the contrast of that. It's as human focused as me understanding what's most important to you and helping you get that. And that should be your mindset when you go out every day to sell. Yeah, I'm here to, to listen, to understand what's really most important to you and then help you get that. And if that's your said your mindset with all of your buyer interactions, you're going to be ahead of the game. You know, I never actually saw the title of your book that way, uh, where you're saying selling out is pushing out information on yourself. Selling it is absorbing the information from them. I saw it as when you sell yourself out, mm -hmm. is uh, sell yourself in to the organization. That's what I was thinking, uh, though, with what you said, that that just made something click big time in my head. I was like, oh, my God, wait, that makes a lot more sense. The title of the book, Selling Out Rather Than Selling In. That's, yes, yeah, fantastic. Now, what's the best place for people to either get a hold of you, your business, or uh, to have a conversation with you that where you'd be open to it and it wouldn't be uh, bothersome? Oh, yeah. No, uh, LinkedIn, obviously, is come to LinkedIn. Um, yeah, connect with me there. Yeah, message me, please. Yeah, I'm happy to have conversations on LinkedIn. Um, or if you want to go on LinkedIn and ask me about having an actual conversation in person, we can do that too. Uh, come to my website, andypaul.com, and you can download a free chapter of the book if you wish. And we have a little fun assessment there that you can take to sort of understand on the spectrum between selling out and selling in. Where do you sit today? And yeah, the book is available Amazon, online, in bookstores, wherever you buy books. I love it. That's fantastic. And uh, is there any uh, preferred method? Uh, no, but yeah, most people buy on Amazon. So yeah, whatever you do, that's good. For sure. Right. Actually, do you have an audio book version? We have digital and audio. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. That's great. Because I know most of the people I know listen to audio books. I can't do it. I need a physical thing to hold. Uh, very much preferred. Oh, yeah. No, I'm purely digital and have been for a number of years. But uh, yeah, I, I narrated the audio book. So it's a few hours of me uh, talking in a year. It's always better to be uh, read by the writer, in my opinion. I don't know why, but it just feels more. They know how they want to talk about it, where usually it sounds a little bit out of place when it's a narrator because they don't really know the feeling behind mm -hmm. what's being said. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. Anyway, I want to thank everybody for listening today. And I want to thank you, Andy, for doing such an incredible job and in providing so much insight uh, into a lot of different areas of, of sales that people don't talk about or didn't even know existed. Oh, thanks, Rob. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I hope a lot of people buy your book uh, out of this. That would be a huge bonus. Uh, I know that I am. It's on my wish list right now once I finish the others. So uh, it's definitely something I'll be reading too. Now, thank you, everybody. Uh, appreciate it. And uh, if you share this podcast, it'd be much appreciated. Uh, hashtag DTRH podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, follow Down the Rabbit Hole podcast for new episodes weekly on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, and YouTube.
If you'd like to apply to be featured on the podcast or recommend a featured guest, please feel free to email us 